Today, we are wrapping up a short teaching series that uh, we've called The Clash of Kingdoms. We spent most of this entire year looking at the parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus told to help us imagine what it would look like for God's kingdom, for, for God himself to be in charge of everything. And when Jesus, on that Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem announcing that the kingdom of God is here, it's kind of a clash of the kingdom of God with the way that the world operates, the kingdoms of the world. So last week we looked at the the way of the world is pride and elevating oneself, but Jesus' kingdom runs on humility. On Friday, we looked at the way of the world is to avoid pain at all costs, but Jesus says that he invites us to pick up our cross and to follow him. And today, we're going to look at how the way of the world is to say, you only live one time, so get as much as you can right now, whereas the resurrection of Jesus says that we have the offer of eternal life. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to invite my brother Haziel to come up, and he's going to do our scripture reading for us today. So let's prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. Uh, This is God's word. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, uh, Don't be afraid, because I, knew, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these words that were written down so long ago. And yet, as we open them, and as your Holy Spirit stirs our hearts, we too can encounter the risen Jesus today. And so, Jesus, I pray that each and every heart that is here would have an opportunity to encounter you in a new and a fresh way, and that the hope of the resurrection would fill our hearts today. Lord, would you guide my words and and guard my speech, and I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and give us all uh, receptive hearts today. In Jesus' good name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Well, I stumbled across an article two weeks ago. Uh, it was not an April Fool's Day article. It was a real article. I had to look multiple times, and I thought, perfect, just in time for Easter. The article, the headline of the article was, Google engineer predicts human immortality in seven years. We did it. This is great. And you know, you know how like when you read things on the internet, you know how that makes it automatically true? How much more so from a guy who used to work on building the internet? This guy, his name is Ray Kurzweil. He's a futurist, which is a fancy way of saying he makes guesses. Uh, this article said he made a bold prediction that humans will achieve immortality in the next seven years thanks to the help of, you ready for it? Nanobots. Tiny little microscopic robots. Kurzweil believes that with the current advancements and expansions seen in genetics, robots, and nanotechnology, quote, 
we'll soon have nanobots running through our veins. Put me on the record as saying no thanks. Uh, He claims, I've seen the Terminator. I've seen (laughs) the Matrix. He claims that these microscopic robots will fend off aging and illness and repair our bodies on a cellular level, ultimately leading to everlasting life by 2030. Y'all, just hold on for seven more years. It's good. Like, we're good. Now, you can color me skeptical. Obviously, the whole injecting robots into your blood thing, I'm a little nervous right from the outset. Um, Again, I've seen probably too many science fiction movies. But also, I think, like, what a bold claim to say in seven years we're going to have cured death. Do you know what science has not yet cured? The common cold. Uh, some, of my, some of my brothers out there are like, how about boldness? Like, we could cure that. Uh, heck, I, I might be willing to get injected with nanobots if they could cure hiccups. I hate hiccups. They, they drive me nuts. There's all sorts of things that we could probably try to fix before just saying, nope, we did it, eternal life. You know, we can kind of chuckle at it, but really this quest for immortality, this quest for life is something that really has run throughout all of human history. Back in the 1940s during World War II, the, the Nazi leader Heinrich Himmler was looking for the Holy Grail, the, the cup that Jesus drank from at the night of the Last Supper because he believed if he could also drink from the cup that he would be given everlasting life. You guys have seen that documentary starring Harrison Ford, uh, Indiana Jones. Like, you remember that, right? Uh, in, the, in the year, this one's like kind of gross. Kids, cover your ears. But in the year 1492, a report came out that one of the popes, a guy named Innocent VIII, was being in injected with children's blood because he thought that would make him younger. Gross. Okay, moving on. Uh, In the Middle Ages in Europe, there was a a widespread quest to find something called the Philosopher's Stone. And no kids, Harry Potter didn't invent that. It was around like hundreds of years ago, they thought that this stone could turn any metal into gold. And if you could ingest the gold, that would make you live forever. Don't, children, swallow your mother's gold jewelry. Don't do it. In the 300s BC in China, the emperor uh, known as uh, uh, Qin Shi Huang, who is widely thought to be the first emperor to unify China, he actually died of mercury poisoning, poisoning because a charlatan sold him something that was the elixir of life. And when he drank it, instead of living forever, he actually died. All throughout ancient Egypt, uh, the ancient Egyptians would mummify their dead, or at least the nobility, because throughout antiquity, they believed that that is what would help them live forever, would live into immortality. And actually, the, the, the oldest document that we have in human civilization, it's a written document from Mesopotamia. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it's really written about the quest for immortality. 4,000 plus years ago, whether the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Philosopher's Stone or nanobots, humans have been trying to figure out this death problem that we have. Now, we're here on a Sunday morning in a church as a Christian uh, follower of Jesus, as a Christian pastor. It is my duty to tell you that Christians make a few claims. The Bible makes a few claims. The Christian faith makes a few claims. One of those starting point, one of those initial starting point claims is that there is a God who created everything and when he created everything, it was all good. That God made the heavens, he made the earth. He made the sun, the moon, the stars. He made the mountains, he made the 
oceans. He made the earth to have seasons. And if you are a Seattleite, just pretend like you know what seasons are, okay? He made all things good. And the crown jewel, the achievement that he was the most delighted in was making mankind, human beings, male and female, in his image and likeness. All the other days of creation, God looked and said, this is good. And then he made humanity and he said, this is very good. Now, we were created to have relationship with God, to exist with him, and to eat from the, the, the tree of life, and so to live and not die. But the, the, the Christian faith and the Bible makes a claim that very early, humanity messed things up really badly. That the, the first man and the woman chose to live according to their own wishes, to not follow the commandments of the Lord. And in so doing, they opened the door for a whole flood of, of sin and death to enter into the world. And everything is broken. Everything is affected. Everything is infected because of our human sinfulness. And if you don't believe in depravity, uh, I would invite you to have an experience that I had a few years ago to be at SeaTac Airport when the internet went out. I thought it was going to turn into an episode of The Walking Dead. It was wild times there. People who were otherwise re- reasonable human beings behaving like monsters. Humanity is affected and infected with this sin disease and it causes devastation and it causes death. That is one of the claims of the Christian faith. Now, the claims of Christianity really begin to take on a unique opportunity when we see that Jesus comes on the scene as God in the flesh, living a perfect life, teaching about the kingdom of God, healing diseases, bringing people back from the dead, and claiming that through his life and his death and his resurrection that he can offer us forgiveness. One of the absolutely central claims of the Christian faith is that God will forgive us of our sins. Anybody grateful for that promise? That God offers us forgiveness through the person and the work of Jesus. What's more, Jesus offers us not just forgiveness, but Jesus offers us this sense of of inner well-being. There is a peace. There is a hope. There is a joy. There is a love to be had as a follower of Jesus. Can I get an amen from anybody in the church? Maybe some of you came to faith a little later in life and you can remember those days before you knew the grace of God is revealed in Jesus. And you look back on those days, you remember the hopelessness or the lack of love or the lack of peace. Jesus offers us this inner well-being, this, this hope and this joy and this love. Now, all All of this is true. All of these are central claims of the Christian faith. But there is one more that really like sees and raises, and it's this. Jesus offers immortality. Jesus offers everlasting life. Sometimes people, maybe well-meaning people, We'll say things about Jesus. I got to be careful with these flowers. The woman who had them set up said she was really nervous that I was going to kick them over. So I'm going to try to be careful. If I do, it's because I'm excited about Jesus. Okay, so Jesus, sometimes people will say that he was a good moral teacher. He was a doer of good deeds. He showed us a way that we ought to live our lives. And I believe that all of that is true. But Jesus also made some outlandish claims that go far beyond just being a good moral teacher. He said things like in John chapter 6. He said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son, who sees me, and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up 
on the last day. Or a few chapters later in John 11, you may know that Jesus was friends with, with two sisters and a brother, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and Lazarus got sick, and Jesus was not there to heal him. And, and so Jesus finally shows up, and Lazarus has died, and, and the sisters are kind of giving Jesus the, the what for, and Martha is having this conversation with Jesus. She said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, always reasonable, Martha, she said, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And Jesus responds, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again, you know, in the resurrection on that last day at the end of the age. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, Jesus, if not telling the truth, the technical theological term for what he says there is bonkers, okay? That's nuts. Jesus is saying that he, after all of humanity's searching and this quest for everlasting life, for immortality, he is saying, I'm the one with this power, And he asked, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Now, it is claims like this that made the religious leaders of Jesus' day very upset. They said to him, you're just a man, you're just a mere guy, and yet you're elevating yourself to be God? And so they conspired together, and they lied about him, and they worked with the Roman government officials to arrest him, to try him, and to have him put to death. Death on a cross, the most humiliating, lowest class, painful way that anyone could die. He was crucified publicly. And for the followers of Jesus, for his first disciples, it was this, it was this gut punch of defeat. We thought he was going to be the one to restore Israel. We thought he was the one to offer us forgiveness from God. We thought he was the one to make all things right. And so they went and they hid. The Bible tells us that they, they ran away while Jesus was being crucified. And they went and they holed up in this upper room of a house, terrified for their lives, because if we're associated with Jesus, then they're going to come and get us too. For his followers, it looked like all of the claims of Jesus were false. Matthew 28, we pick up the story. After the Sabbath day. Jesus was crucified on that Friday. They had to hurry the burial proceedings to be done before sundown for the Jewish Sabbath. They, they were hiding out on the Sabbath. It said, on the first day of the week, as it was dawning, it's a Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb to likely finish that burial proceedings. By the way, the other Mary is likely Mary, the mother of James and Zebedee, who's referenced back in Matthew 26. But scholars can't be sure for certain because there are approximately mm, 1,100 women named Mary in the Gospels, okay? Very common name. It says there was this violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was just chilling on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. 
But the angel told, so the women show up. There's the soldiers just passed out on the ground. There's a really lightning-y looking guy just chilling on the rock. And the women, the angel told the women, hey, don't be afraid. Good. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, don't be afraid. If you ever saw a real angel, you would know. Because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but guess what? He is not here. You can travel the world and you can visit the tombs of many famous people, religious leaders included. You cannot go to the tomb of Jesus and find his bones there because he's not there. He is not here for he is risen just like he said. Remember all those times when he told you he was going to have to die and then rise again and it was so hard for you to understand it? But look, it's happened. He's risen just as he said. Some, come, you can see the place where he was laying. Then I need you to, women, you need to go tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead and that he wants to meet you in Galilee. If you, if you, if you hurry, you're going to see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear, the angel said not to fear. Okay, it's fine. We'll give them, we'll give them the benefit of that. But now this fear is mixed with great joy. I like to think of it as just maybe the most confusing, chaotic, perplexing moment that anyone has ever lived through. I don't know for any of you parents how hard it was to get your kids dressed and here on time. This morning was more confusing and perplexing, okay? They ran to tell the other disciples the news. And as these women are running, just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. I don't know why I hear it in that tone of voice. I just see it's like very chipper. Like Jesus is like, ha, it's a good day to be alive, Jesus says. And they came up and they took hold of his feet. And look at this. They worshiped him. They knew that this was no mere man, that this truly was the son of God. And they worshiped him. And Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Again, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and I'm going to meet them there. Now, the story goes on a little bit. I want to read through the end of the Gospel of Matthew because there's some important things to see. Verse 11, it says, as they were on their way, those guards came, came to after being passed out. They went back into the city and they reported to the chief priests, the religious leaders, everything that had happened. And after the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a lot of money and said, here's what you need to say. Tell, tell the story that the disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. And if this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with the governor and you won't get in trouble. So it says that they took the money and they did what they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. Friends, there's, there's a lot of explanations, even from the very beginning, trying to understand what happened to Jesus' body. And I I think that this story, maybe some people actually still to this day believe it. I think I've seen it on various, you know, secular documentaries saying it's one of the possible theories that the disciples stole the body. I think that that theory holds no water because of two reasons. Number one, these are trained Roman guards. And if they had just fallen asleep, they would actually have been put to death, which is why they're saying, hey, we'll deal with the governor. We'll keep you out of trouble. Second of all, the disciples did not come in the middle of the night and steal the body. Do you know why? Because they were hiding. The technical biblical term for that is chickens. Hiding, scared, afraid, 
quaking in their boots. Only Mary and then that other Mary had the guts to show their faces to go say, we need to properly honor the body of the Lord Jesus to finish the burial, to finish the burial proceedings. They did not steal his body. Friends, there's a lot of explanations and a lot of conjectures as to what happens, but we who have come to know and believe in Jesus believe that the uh, the, the most miraculous thing possible has happened, that he is alive, that the tomb is empty because, like he said, he came back from the dead. Now, in verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, They worshiped, which is, again, they're acknowledging that he is God, but it says that some doubted. And I just want to pause for a quick moment on that because sometimes sincere followers of Jesus have doubts. Raise your hand if you've ever had, as a follower of Jesus, doubts, okay? If not, they're probably coming for you. I find it incredibly encouraging to know that the very first followers of Jesus, these disciples who had the opportunity to see the resurrected Savior with their own eyes still struggled at times with doubt. If there's grace for them, there's grace for you. We don't cling to certainty of the mind. We cling to Jesus. Some doubted, and Jesus came near and said, listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on, church, and on earth. My, my kingdom is now fully realized. I'm in charge of it all. So what I'm giving you the instructions to do now is to go into the whole world and make disciples of all the nations. And I want you to baptize them. We're going to do that here in just a little while. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, Jesus says, remember, here it is. I am with you always to the end of the age. Why can Jesus say that? Because he is not a dead religious founder. He is a living and resurrected savior who is always present to us through his word, through his Holy Spirit, alive and dwelling in the hearts of those who believe. Praise God for that. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. Now, maybe you've never undertaken a quest for immortality. Maybe you've never sought to find the chalice, the holy grail. Maybe you've never sought to procure the philosopher's stone other than just the copy of the first Harry Potter book. Maybe you've never mummified yourself. But I do think that we as human beings are still struggling in many ways to deal with this desire for immortality. And apart from Jesus, there's a few pathways that we will commonly walk down. See if you see yourself in any of these pathways. One of the pathways that people will walk down to gain eternal life is the pathway of working really hard at it, eating super healthy, exercising all the time, getting all the right skin creams and lotions and potions and elixirs and, and, and nanobots, for goodness sake. We're going to work really, really hard. 
And friends, while there is something good about taking care of the body that the Lord has given to us and and eating well and caring for our bodies as the temple of the Lord, the reality is that on this side of eternity, until that day that Jesus returns, death has claimed victory over every single human being who's ever lived except for Jesus. You can't work hard enough to gain everlasting life. No matter what health guru on Instagram you follow, you can't do it. No matter how many nanobots you inject yourself with. And again, should that happen, I think things are going to go really wrong. I don't know. Just color me pessimistic. Pathway number two then is, okay, well, maybe I can't eat enough kale or whatever to live forever. Pathway two is I'm going to get a lot of money and I'm going to get a lot of power and I'm going to be very important and I'm going to be, I'm going to live on beyond my life. My name will be remembered problem with that is you can have your name go down in history. Your name can be remembered, but all the people that we remember, they're still dead. And many of the people who have had this quest for money or power or importance will say that all the, all the while during that quest, they still experience that inner emptiness and that sense of hopelessness. I was reading a book recently by a guy who kind of like accidentally invented like cell phones, I think. He's from Texas, of course. He made a ton of money. And he's writing about how in his mid-life, you know, somewhere around maybe 45 years old, he had millions upon millions of dollars. He had everything that human existence could ask for. His name was definitely going to go down in history. And all the while, he just felt empty inside until he met Jesus. A third pathway that some people will take to push off that feeling of dread and that desire for immortality is to have righteousness, to be right. Maybe I can't have my name go down in history. Maybe I can't achieve eternal life, but at least I can be better than someone else. And friends, there's a religious version of this. There's also really a strong, a secular version of this right now. I'm just going to do everything that's really good and I'm going to look down upon or shun or cancel those who don't live up to my standard of morality. Maybe I can't be immortal, but I can be moral. And I can be better than you. When that doesn't work out, really common pathway is to just pursue pleasure and feel good. Well, I can't live forever, so I'm just going to get as much pleasure as possible. YOLO, you only live once, so live it up. Again, multiple problems with that. Number one, similarly to as above, that sense of inner emptiness, pursuing pleasure and waking up the next day feeling the weight of shame and regret, but also certain pleasures that you pursue, pursue will actually shorten your life. And if none of those work, what we are seeing right now in devastating record numbers in our society is pathway number five, which is just give up. Hopelessness, despair, anxiety. I can't live forever. I can't just pursue pleasure forever. Just give up. I don't know if you're reading the same statistics that I am and seeing the same sorts of things about, about the hopelessness that is just absolutely ravaging the society in which we live. And friends, 
every one of these pathways, every one of these desires, every one of these things that we might try to do to grasp for that immortality, they are all given to us in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus shows up and says, you don't need to work hard. I have done the work for you. It is finished. The work is complete. I have lived the life you needed to live. I have died the death in your place. I have risen again. It is done. And Jesus shows up and says, you don't need to pursue importance and having your name live on forever. He says, I'm going to seat you in heavenly places with me. I'm going to invite you to a seat at the table at the marriage supper of the lamb. You don't need to make your name great. I've got your name written on my hand. And you don't need to be right and pursue righteousness. Jesus says, I am righteousness. And if you will but trust in me, I will gift you my righteousness. You will be united to me. And when God the Father, the righteous judge, looks at you, he is going to see you as though you were as perfect as Jesus Christ himself. And you don't need to pursue the pleasures of this life. You don't need to live for the the earthly pleasures because Jesus says, in my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there is a day coming when the trumpet sounds and the sky cracks open and we see him face to face and we will live forever in paradise with him, feasting on the choicest of meats, drinking from the finest of wines and enjoying creation restored as it was meant to be in the beginning. And Jesus says, you don't need to give up. You don't need to despair. Take heart. I have overcome the world and there is hope because I'm risen from the dead. How good is this news, friends? This is the hope of the gospel. Life and joy and hope and comfort and meaning now and the bold, audacious claim that resurrection life in the body, perfection on the day of his return. So what do we do? I want to call you to a response. First of all, I want you to acknowledge your own sin and repent. And maybe some of you, you don't go to church very often. You hear that word repent and you're like, I knew it. That preacher's got a necktie on. I knew he was going to say repent. I'll have you know, I tied my own neckties. I didn't go to all those years of Baptist elementary school. I had to teach my dad how to tie a necktie. Okay, so yes, of course I'm going to say the word repent. And some of you think that the word repent is like like a sledgehammer here to bust you. I'm here to tell you the word repent is more like take off that heavy backpack of rocks that you've been carrying around and experience an unburdening in your soul because there is forgiveness offered in Jesus. God, I am sorry. I have chosen my own way over yours. I have lived my life on my own terms. I've participated in the widespread brokenness and death that is everywhere. Believe the offers of Jesus. Receive his forgiveness. Receive that joy and that hope and that peace that he offers to you. Number three, get baptized. In a moment here, we have at least one person signed up and ready to get baptized, but maybe you're here today and you're like, I haven't really considered this. I think I need to get baptized as a follower of Jesus. We have a change of clothes for you. We have a towel for you. We have a pastor who will talk to you and lead you through it. We want you to respond in the waters of baptism. And number four, live forever with God. Live forever with God. Don't just live for today. 
In a little while, when we conclude this time of worship and we go back into our lives, we go back into our neighborhoods and we go back into our worlds, there is a world that is screaming at you to live only for today. Particularly, especially if you watch television, look at how all the commercials are offering you some sort of live for today, live for right now. We can give you the good life. Jesus says, I'm offering you life forever with God. Friends, we have an eternal hope because Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he is raised. And one day he will come again and we will live with him forever. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that Jesus is alive. Lord, if it was just a death, we wouldn't have any hope. But because Jesus is alive, we have ultimate hope. And we can praise you for that ultimate hope that we have. God, I pray you would help us to respond now, not by living just for the moment, but by living for eternity, living for the one who has saved us, who has offered us peace for this life, hope for this life, but also the life that is to come. And right now, God, we pray that as we celebrate with the waters of baptism, that you would stir our hearts with fresh love and fresh joy for Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.